If you would, turn in the Bible to the book of James. James chapter 1 is where we've been now for four Sundays. This marks the fifth Sunday, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 15. We're getting to a good spot here, and this morning we're going to talk about tests and temptations. Man, that's a good subject for us. There are a lot of temptations in our lives, and there are a lot of tests in our lives, and God is using all of those different things. But James seems to recognize that life gets awfully hard and difficult and trying. So one of the reasons why we wanted to study the book of James at this time uh, in the life of our church, because we're all going through this pandemic. And in this pandemic, the coronavirus that we're dealing with, it's dragging on. It's been going on now for a long time. And there is a growing tension and burden and stress and weariness and exhaustion that we're all living with. And so... We find ourselves uh, on everything that's going on in our lives asking, you know, God, what are you doing and why is this happening and how do you want me to think here? And there's a whole lot of that. And James also is dealing with that on a bigger level. They're dealing with persecution. We want to be careful to make sure that we don't think a pandemic is, is persecution upon us. It's something that uh, God has allowed to happen and it's not fun or easy, but we can think through it rightly. Well, James here in chapter 1 goes into trying to clarify tests, trials, and temptations. And that's a neat thing to see him doing that because James seems to understand that the way you think about what is happening to you makes all the difference in how it affects you. Can I say that again? James seems to think that the way you think about Everything that's happening to you seems to make all the difference in how it affects you. And we really need to get that, right? And that's what today's about, tests and temptations. We're calling this sermon series Faith Works because we need to understand that it is through a true surrender and trust in Christ that God has told us is the key or the solution or the answer for us to make it through whatever, Willpower is a good thing, but willpower runs out. I hope you're strong and you've got some toughness and stick to itness about you, but that runs out. We need a faith in Christ that lasts forever. We need to be able to believe with the new heart that God has given us that the God in heaven is Lord of all, he's on the throne, and that he's in charge, right? And so we say faith works. And this is what James is speaking to. In saying that faith works, I want to read to you a verse from 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Listen to this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What a statement. Okay, well, faith in what? Well, I want to read you another verse from Hebrews chapter 4. Of course, all this is before we've even started reading in James. But listen to this in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what James is speaking to. James is speaking to a faith that works, a faith that overcomes the world, a faith in Jesus who himself has overcome sin, 
death and the devil by way of death, burial, and resurrection, a risen king who fears absolutely nothing, who sits on the throne beside his father and reigns over everything. There's not a heart that beats. There's not a lung that breathes. There's not a star that shoots. There's not a seed of grass that grows apart from the sovereign, powerful Lord Christ. None of it. And we believe him. We trust him. He is working. We may not always see it. We may not always understand it. But faith works, and so we believe. And this is what James is speaking to in chapter 1 as we look now to verses 12 through 15. Read with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Wow. I told you all in the first week in the introduction that James doesn't hold back. James knows that life is on the line. James knows that we need some answers. We need God. And so James brings it. We see this here in in chapter one. I want to give you three points today. Number one, test results. Test results. Number two, trial rewards. Trial rewards. Number three, temptation realities. Temptation realities. Number one, test results. Man, we're all familiar with that, aren't we? Test results. In school, you take a big test, you're worried it's going to be, and you walk out of there going, man, I just bombed that thing. Oh, man, I don't want to know what I made on that. And then you just wait and wait to see what the teacher says your score is. Perhaps you go to the doctor, and they take a test to see whether you have cancer, and they say, we'll call you in a couple days and let you know. And those couple days are just waiting and waiting or waiting. Or perhaps you've had a COVID test over the past couple weeks. And they've shoved that thing all the way up through your nose, past your eyes, into your brain to see if you have the coronavirus, right? And they say, we'll let you know here in three or four days. And those three or four days are waiting and waiting and waiting, hoping that it comes back a negative and that it's not a positive. And we deal with that. Test results can do a lot to us. We can't wait to get the test results. And yet, here in James chapter 1, James uses that talk to speak about what's going on in our lives in response to the troubles or trials or adversity that's going on with us. He speaks about it. Right here, he's talking about trials, he's talking about tests, and he's talking about temptations in this one little section. So I want to clarify what we have going on here, okay? A temptation is to get you to fail. And yes, it is the third point today where I'm going to talk more about temptation. But a temptation is to get you to fail. If Please, if you're taking notes, make sure you get these things right. A temptation is to get you to fail. A test is to get you to pass. There's a big difference there. Big difference there. And James wants us to understand what is happening to me? Who's brought this about? Why is this in my life? As a way of sorting out the way you view it. One, you should embrace and overcome. One, you should flee from, right? It's good. A test is to prove your faithfulness. Teachers give tests in school so students can prove that they know the material. Bad influences tempt us so that we will also do bad things or wrong things. 
According to Matthew chapter 4, listen to me, Satan tempts. He tempted Jesus. Remember that? He came to Jesus at a vulnerable time. Jesus had been fasting alone in the desert for 40 days, and that's when Satan tempted him. Satan is strategic. Satan is wise. Satan is crafty on when he tempts. But it is Satan that tempts. It is God that tests. Notice there's a difference. Now, it may be the same trial that you're going, God's testing me, Satan's tempting me. That may be going on at the same time. But notice we need to understand what's going on here, okay? Satan tempts, God tests. Also, Satan does not test. Satan's not putting something in your life hoping that you'll overcome it. Satan's not putting that trial before you hoping that you'll prove strong and that you don't need him. God does not tempt. Satan does not test. God does not tempt. We see that right here in in verse 13. He is pointing out God is not the one tempting us. Okay, So this is helpful. It's helpful for us to think this way on test results. So something comes into our life and we're really struggling and it has us discouraged and we start looking at things that we're going to do or how we're going to handle it and we start to make excuses, right? I can't tell you how many times in my life I've heard somebody say they're on a diet and they're really going to stick to it. They're really working on this diet. And next thing you know, they're out to dinner and everybody else is ordering a milkshake. And so they just say, well, you know, I was on a diet, but why not, you know? We start to say, well, if everybody else is doing it, I'm going to do it. And I don't want to be the only person here not sticking it out. My diet's not worth to me at that point, right? And we get into all that sort of thing. And it's neat to think through that and say, okay, well, well was this a test that I was supposed to pass? Because I could have said I don't want a milkshake, Or was this a temptation from the devil that I should have said, I know I don't need this milkshake, right? And we get into things like that, and certainly we can smile and laugh about, uh, you know, just another milkshake or something like that. But what about when it's real stuff? What about when our husband hasn't held our hand in a long time? And a person at the office so kind and gracious and uplifting to me that it almost seems like the right thing to do to embrace this man who treats me better than my husband. These are real things that happen all the time. And James wants us to understand why we're going through what we're going through. Just as a little side note, listen to me, men. There ought to be no man that Treat your wife better than you do. There ought to be no man out there that compliments your wife more than you do. Shame on you if she's thinking, he makes me feel better about myself than my own husband does. Shame on you. Let us not be the avenue. Let us not be the conduit where Satan has jumped in and temptation is thriving and people are being tested to live for Jesus because we're simply not being what we're supposed to be. Shame on us for that. So Satan tempts, God tests. Satan does not test, God does not tempt. So test results are important in our lives because we start looking at the things that we're going through and we want to be able to see, hey, what does faithfulness to God look like here? I know I'm going through it, but I know what God expects of me. 
Hey, I know I'm going through it, and I know what Satan would rejoice in. I know what Satan wants to do to me right now. I know it. And so we start looking at tests and saying, what does the outcome produce? What does God desire for me, and what does Satan? It's good to think about this. Take this step a little bit further. I mean, take this thinking a little bit further. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, it was on the second temptation, while resisting the devil's temptation, Jesus said, Again, it is written, he quotes the Bible, you all know this, and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is fascinating. Now, we're talking about God testing us, and I'm telling you that tests are a good thing because they prove our, 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 our knowledge or our obedience or our faithfulness or whatever. But Jesus quotes and says, you don't test God. Well, why is that? Why is that that I'm saying tests are good things for us, right? One person that says that measurement equals motivation. A test can help you see where you're at, Right? Well, but we don't test God. Why? The Bible teaches that life is full of tests and that God tests us, but we are never to test God. Why? Because, again, a test is to prove your faithfulness. God's faithfulness is not in question. Does everybody hear that? God's faithfulness is not in question. He is so faithful to you. He made you. He loves you. He knows you. He knows every single flaw and weakness and shortcoming in us right now, and he is still good and faithful to us. God's faithfulness is not in question. We don't need God to prove himself to us. He never has been, it never has been, and it never will be. He is always faithful and true. By faith, may we live faithful to him. And by faith, may we never question or test his faithfulness. May we be able to think in our lives about test results when we find ourselves going through something that we don't enjoy or we wish it wasn't the case or we are praying for God to change it, may we know that there is a faithfulness and obedience that should continue to trust in God through this. May we say that it's not the way I would like for it to be, but I will be faithful to God through it. And on the other hand, may we be able to recognize a temptation where, where Satan wants us to fail the test. And we say, I'm not going to fail the test. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to make an excuse here. I'm not going to try to justify my wrong. I don't want to fail the test. This is what's happening when you look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, or another translation says, when he has passed the test. James here is being very bold in saying That the blessed man is the man who has been tested, been through trials, and yet held on to the anchor, which is Christ. Kept his faith through Christ. Kept believing in God through the test, through the trial, and is now on the other side of the test. That is the blessed person. And so we see that test results, spiritually speaking, with faith, are a good thing. Faith works even through tests. But secondly... There are also rewards to the trials. There are also rewards to the trials. Look, at back, look back at verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God has promises out there for those who trust him. God has promises out there for those who love him that he will reward them. There is a crown waiting for them. And the Bible speaks of heaven being a place 
where all of the redeemed are gathered before the throne of God. And we bask in the beauty and glory and majesty and worth of our Father in heaven and his son Jesus, who actually tells us the sin and the death, who reigns, and we're there before him. And the Bible actually tells us that he's going to give a crown as a reward to those who finish the race and endure to the end. The Bible says that. It uses those terms. And and, and, and that God's going to give us a crown. And there's a neat dynamic to it because the Bible also says that those who receive the crown will come and will fall down before the throne. And the Bible says that we will cast our crowns back at the feet of our Savior for our ability to endure and our steadfastness to make it to the end was only allowed by His grace. It was His strength that gave us strength. It was His keeping us that kept us, right? And so there's this beautiful discussion in the Bible on reward and a crown. But nevertheless, the Bible says here, and James sees it as a motivating factor here, an incentive that God recognizes and rewards those who pass tests and who endure trials, spiritually speaking. Now, this is not so much to say that the teacher's favorite student in class is the one that makes the best grades. But this is to say that in redemption in Christianity, those that God saves love the one who saved them. Those that God forgives love the ones who love the one who forgave them. And when you love that God that saved you, when you love that Jesus that died for you, when you love that gracious, merciful Father who forgives you, it is inspiring and satisfying. And it is an incentive to know that he is aware that even in my trials, I'm trusting him. And he will give a reward to those who endure. It says this in verse 12. But we must notice in verse 12, as I've already mentioned, that he calls this person blessed who makes it through to the other side, who passes the test. That's the blessed person. That's what verse 12 is talking about. And I want to point out to you, and Jake did this too when he preached last Sunday, But I want to point out to you that what he's discussing in verse 12, he's already talked about in verses 2 through 4. It just looks like he's on the back end of it. Look up to verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, there's that word again, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we saw a couple weeks ago when I preached on that, that the goal is not steadfastness. Steadfastness is a good thing. It's toughness. It's I'm not giving up. I'm not bowing out. It's a stick to itness, if you will. Steadfastness, but it's not the goal. The goal is Christ-likeness. The goal is maturity in Christ. The goal is God's never failed me, so I'm not giving up on him. I'm not letting go because he's not letting go. I'm going to keep trusting because he is not going to give up his faithfulness on me. That's the goal. It says it right there. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, how do you get that? Through the trials that God allows us to go through that he uses to make us that way. That's what he says. Well, at verse 12, he just brings it up and he says, blessed is the person that made it to the trials, stuck to to faith through the trials, and now is on the other side, has passed the test of the trials. That's what he says. Blessed is that person. Blessed is that person. 
So then, I think, you and I have to be really careful. I had somebody tell me this morning that they're ready to take their shoes off and let me just step on their toes. So here we go. Folks, we need to be careful in how we assess the blessing of God. If you're lost, friends, because I know you have them, talk about God and his blessing, because I know they do, in the same way that you do as a follower of Christ, then we don't understand the blessing of God. How can somebody not redeemed and washed in the blood and forgiven of their sins and made a new creation understand the blessing of God in the same way that somebody is saved has? We've got to be careful how we assess the blessing. Now, the Bible talks about blessing all over the place, and you know that the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 are blessed as this person and blessed as this person and blessed as this person, and they're not always things that are that desirable, but God says they're blessed. Well, right here, James says blessed is the person who's been through all sorts of trials and passed the test and came out on the other side still trusting in Christ. Our lost friends that don't understand the work of God They're going to call it blessed when they haven't faced the trials. They're going to call it blessed when they don't have trials. They're going to hope that God won't bring them through the trials, and when they get to the trials, they'll stop using the word blessing. But James says the blessing was found in and through the trials. Be careful with that. Be careful with that. If you want to really start talking about the blessings in your life, especially since your church is studying the book of James, well, let's be consistent with these blessings. Now, don't get me wrong. There are all sorts of good things in our lives that are, that are blessings, and I'm not trying to get you to get away from that. I'm just trying to get you to understand blessing from the way that James is using it right here. It was through the tests and me and God uh, making me steadfast through it, God building my character, God building my resolve, and yet through that, still trusting in Christ. It is through that that I see his blessing. Several years ago, I had a weird thing happen to me. I was waiting tables at Bonefish Grill and I had this man, I've told this story before, but I know some of y'all haven't heard it. I was waiting tables at lunch one day, and this man was, uh, had a new cell phone. He was trying to work on his cell phone, and I said to him, trying to be nice, you know, small talk as a server, try to get those tips up. And I said, you get your new phone? He said, yeah, but I got a little problem here. He pulls out his back pocket, and he said, I got this little black book. I got all these contacts in it, and I got to get them in this phone, and man, I can't do that. He was an elderly man. He said, you think you could do it for me? I said, what, enter your contacts into your phone? And he said, yeah, I need somebody to do that for me. I said, okay, yeah, I think I could do that. He did like this. He pushed the box and the phone over to me, and he said, okay, here here you go. I said, I'm working right now. I can't do it right now. He said, yeah, I know. He said, why don't you just take it home over the weekend? It was a Thursday. He said, why don't you take it home over the weekend, get them all loaded in there, and uh, maybe I'm... Maybe on Monday we'll meet back up and you give me my phone back. I said, how do you know I'm going to bring it back? He reached in and pulled out this big wad of cash and pulled out $200 bills, which seemed to be out of about $50 bills. And right in front of me, he does like this and tears those $100 bills right in half, right down the middle. And he took the two opposite halves and he said, here you go. This is just two halves, not worth anything. You'll bring my phone back to me, and when you do, you can have the other halves, $200 for you. I said, who are you, and what are you doing? You're trying to impress me with all this weird stuff. I said, you're actually scaring me. 
He reaches in his other pocket and goes, I think I'm done with my wheel, my, my meal. My Ferrari's outside. You want to go pull it up for me? I said, I'm working, and you don't have a Ferrari. He said, I'll be something if I don't. Why don't you go outside and look at it? So I go out there, and he's got a nice Ferrari sitting in the parking lot. And uh, I'm like, who are you, dude? I'm just trying to serve you lunch. What is going on here? He says, well, take my phone. Maybe one day I'll let you drive the Ferrari. And he leaves. Now I've got his phone and two halves of a $100 bill, and I'm thinking, what in the world? Well, long story short, I got to the C's in his little address book, and his phone was already full, and now I'm freaking out, like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I, I've, I've still got, I've still got uh, 23 letters in the alphabet to load, load into this phone, and now I'm probably not going to get the other half of this $200, and I was just wasted my whole weekend, like all that stuff's going on. Long story short, I give it back to him. He's got to go and get a bigger and better phone, more memory, and all that kind of stuff. Long story short, he did let me drive the Ferrari. Then a couple days later, we're at his office trying to do something else. I hardly know the man. And he's still showing me all these things, just trying to impress a young 20-something-year-old. He's showing me his watch collection. He's showing me his pictures of him with Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan and stuff like that. And I'm just kind of taking it all in, like, what in the world? And true story, he turns around to me in the office, and his eyes are getting kind of teary. He says, Josh, remember, he's an elderly man, and I was 24. He says, Josh, how come I'm not happy? And in that moment, y'all, I stopped thinking about all the stuff he had just been telling me and who I really am came back out. I started asking God in that quick moment to give me some courage. I said, well, we've talked about this before. The only thing that really makes somebody happy on the inside and deep down is Jesus. And in that moment, I didn't know how he was going to respond. I said, it may be nice for you to have all of these things. And I know you're thinking that this young guy is often really impressed by it. But I want you to know that it's really Jesus that's going to make you happy and not this stuff. Often in the Bible, the word blessed means happy. In many of your translations, it now says happy instead of blessed. I don't want to make blessed as shallow as happy because often happy can, see, can seem to be shallow. But James uses the term blessed, joyful, up, positive, good, good mindset, good spirit, happy. James uses this favor from God term blessed for the person who's been through hard times, trials. Blessed is that man. Blessed is that woman. Who has done what? Who knows who she believes in? Who's been through all the ups and downs? Who's had her heart broken? Whose soul aches? And yet she knows that her Redeemer lives. And not very long from now, she will be with him forever. Blessed is that person. Blessed is the person who through every step of the trial knows there's a reward not too far from now for the person who trusts in Christ. Blessed is that person. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For once he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life. If you are here today and life hurts 
and life is hard and you feel like I don't know how much more I can take or I don't know why God keeps putting me through all this, listen to me. He knows and he loves you and it is a test and a trial for you to show that you believe him. Don't let go. Don't give up. Picture Christ hanging on the cross. Picture nails in his hands and feet. Picture Christ screaming out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Picture the suffering that Christ went through as an answer to the suffering in your life, knowing that after they killed Jesus, he came back to life to show that he is the victor. And 1 John chapter 4, which I read at the beginning, says, here is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. By you trusting in God and trusting in Christ, you will see the reward that God gives through the trial, after the trial, passing the test. Number one, test results. Number two, trial rewards. And then lastly, temptation realities. Look at verse 13. Right after James says the trials, the testing, the reward, once he says that, He then goes into verse 13 where you have this uh, explanation of temptation. And I think what's happening here is James knows that when life gets hard, we start asking why. Verse 12 is about those who endure during trials. And then verse 13 seems to be talking about those who aren't going to endure is what it seems like. Verse 12 sounds awesome. There's a reward for you who passed the test. And then verse 13 is describing these people who maybe aren't going to pass the test. And so now they're looking to blame God. God, you're the one tempting me. In our struggles and trials, it often becomes a blame game. You remember this, right? Adam sinned in the garden. Whose fault was it? Eve's. Eve sinned in the garden. Whose fault was it? The devil's. Right? It's the blame game. All of us would be a lot nicer if it wasn't for the stupid people that we encounter. Isn't that right? Isn't that the way life works a lot? I treat, my li- well, I treat my wife a lot better if she wasn't so hard to treat right. You know what I mean? People talk like that, don't they? And I'd be a lot better dad. I'd be a lot better dad if my kids weren't so burdensome. I make excuses all the time. I make excuses all the time. It turns into a blame game. And I think James is picking up on this because out of nowhere, it's this awesome, steadfast, enduring trial type of thing. And all of a sudden he says, there are people out there trying to blame God. There are people trying to say that God's the one tempting them and that's not the way it goes. In my, in my last sermon in this passage, I said that we should stop asking God why and we should start asking him what. Not, not why are you doing this, God, like I kind of think you might be off, but what are you doing, God? I trust you, so help me see how you're using it for good in my life. It's along these same lines that we have the blame game. When we find ourselves falling or failing in trials, we look for excuses, and this is now what James is addressing with temptation. Verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, because in trials and tests there are temptations. There's a desire to cut corners. There's a desire to to take the easy way out. There's a desire, oh, there's a desire to just lie or fudge the truth to make the road smoother. And when you're tempted, there's a desire to say, I'm being tempted by God. And James says, don't you do that. Don't you go there. Let nobody say that he's tempted by God. God doesn't tempt people. 
God is not tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Commentator Robertson says, it's the devil's business to lure another person into wrong. Can you remember that? Any time in your life where you're desiring to do wrong, desiring to do bad, desiring to sin, that's what the devil is wanting you to do. It's not what God's wanting you to do. We have two observations here. God himself tempts no one, and God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot. He does not. He cannot struggle. God always and only does what is good and right and true and holy. Listen to this, Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly, who's a person's? When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Is it true or is it true? That when my bad mistakes and my, de- my decisions start to mess up my life, I get mad at God. Why are you putting me through this, God? And that's what the Bible teaches. And James knows that people go there. James knows that we fall into that why, 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 why. And James says, don't you dare say that that's God putting you in that position. I told y'all that James was tough. Commentator Hughes says, we must never say the devil made me do it. We must never say my friends made me do it. We must never say circumstances made me do it. And we must never say God made me do it. We are to say I sinned. We are to be able to say my fault. I was wrong. It's our responsibility. Though trial in itself is ordered by God for our good... Yet the inner solicitation to evil, which is aroused by the outer trial, is from ourselves. Look here at verse 13. Sorry, verse 14. Okay? Don't say it's God. Okay, well then where did it come from? If it didn't come from God, where did it come from? And notice, pay attention here. It wasn't from the devil. Or if it was, James doesn't say it. Be careful here. You gotta be honest if you're gonna come to church and study the Bible. You gotta be honest. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Does everybody see that? It doesn't say the devil there. Now the devil may be doing the temptation. He may be the enticer or the luring one. But what is it actually playing on? What you desire. If you didn't know the Bible teaches that, then you need to. Now, this word entice is a good one, right? This word entice is a good one, and I think you know it, right? It's used in the Proverbs all the time. The very first chapter of Proverbs, listen to this, Proverbs chapter 1. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Entice. There are things out there that are trying to get us to buy in. There are things out there that are trying to get us to come along and embrace, do things, go that way. Entice is a good word. Commentator Robertson says, the modern demons of drink or drug or brothels are busy in finding their victims. But the point made by Jesus is that the one who yields does so because of the sin within his own you got to be honest, folks. How many times have we heard somebody say that when a kid gets caught up in the wrong crowd, that the problem was the friends, it was the group they are associating with? And there is some truth to that, right? 
But we must be honest about what was it about the kid that desired to be caught up in that crowd. That's what we're getting at. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't want to push blame. But we certainly, if we are going to have to try to find an answer or any blame at all, don't let it be that the blame is always everybody else. Parents, let's be honest. Let's parent our own kids and not everybody else's. I know that's a hard conversation to have, but let's parent our own kids and not everybody else's. If the blame's always on somebody else, we never come around to saying the problem's us. Hey, if you've got problems with a lot of people, guess who the problem is? See, we've got to be able to recognize that James is saying this is on the inside of us. There's a desire in there. But when we start talking about this temptation and the enticement, that's where we learn that the Bible is teaching us that God has an answer to the temptation. Matt read it earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You remember it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, verse 13, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. Everybody deals with temptation. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so while God is not the one who tempts, God is the one who rescues from temptation. God is the one who delivers from temptation. Commentator Moose says, temptation will be a part of our experience, as it was the experience of Jesus himself. He was tempted. Throughout our time on earth, we will be tempted. Listen to this. Christian maturity, listen to this, is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but rather by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Big difference there. Christians are tempted and tempted a lot. The amount of temptation in your life does not speak to your maturity or not. Your maturity in Christ, God working through the trials, passing the test, understanding reward, understanding results that we're seeing, that, not, summing, not succumbing to it, will demonstrate maturity. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching to pray in Matthew chapter 6? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know that prayer? Do you remember when he said and lead us not into temptation. Do you remember that prayer? Do you remember when Jesus in Matthew 26 was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was talking to his disciples and he said this to his close followers, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. He said that to them. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Temptation has a big place in our lives it very well may be in the trial or the test that God is putting us through, but the devil is tempting you in it so that you will fail, so that you will lose your faith in Christ who is a sustainer. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the early martyrs in the 20th century, who was faithful to Christ even to the end, wrote a book called temptation. Listen to this. Remember that James says what happens is the luring, enticing inside of us, okay? Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. 
joy in God is extinguished in us. And we seek all of our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us. Listen, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deep darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken away from us. The the questions present, present themselves, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted for me? Yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation, to appease this desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. It is in temptation that there everything in you rises up against the Word of God. It's the way temptation works. That's the reality of temptation. So when we look back in James at verse 14, we see he uses these two words, lured and enticed. And you know that these are fishing terms, aren't they? And I don't know whether fish are smart or not, but we know how fishing works, and it's really a cool thing. Let's say that that uh, piano right there underneath it was a nice spot to catch some fish. And I don't know how good you are at casting your, your, your line, but let's say we're over here and I've got my little hook and we put like a, a, a nice worm on that hook and I'm going to throw it over there. Let's say I'm not very good at casting it, but let's say there's a nice big fish underneath that piano hiding out. There's a nice little bed there, maybe one of those Christmas trees because I see people throw Christmas trees in their ponds, right? One of those little Christmas trees in there, some fish hiding out there, but I can only cast it to here. And that fish is thinking, man, it's too, too far. It's too risky. I ain't making that 10-foot plunge, man. Something will get me. So I reel it back in, and I cast it again, and it's a little bit further. Maybe it's right here, and that fish sees it, and he's like, man, that's a big, juicy worm. I want that worm, but still a little too far. It's a little too risky. But then every once in a while, you get that perfect cast, and it's like about right here. And that fish is sitting right there thinking, man, I think I'm going to go for it. I I think I can get to that worm, get the worm, and make it back home safely. And he doesn't know that right underneath that worm is a big old hook that's going to end his life. It's going to bring him home to me. And he ain't ever getting back to that bed. James uses those terms. Enticement. Lure. To get you in. Temptation looks like it's really good. And we start trying to reason with should we or should we not, and is it okay, and all of that. And it's gonna mess us up. It's gonna get us to sin. And how bad is sin? Look at verse 15. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James went there, didn't he? It's heavy. 
So you mean the things that I think about and get at my heart and those desires in me have the potential to be that bad? Yes, we do. You mean God means that the evil, dirty thoughts that come into our lives have the potential to be there? Yes, they do. If that fish would just stay right there and wait for a worm not on a hook to fall, he'd be all good. But if he lets that desire and enticement pull him out after the hook, it's going to get him. Y'all, we're living in a day where it's really odd to be hard-edged about sin. We're living in a day where it is very abnormal for you to live like sin might ruin your life. We're living in a day where it's awkward for you to think, man, my desire can lead birth into sin and sin can lead birth into death, meaning I'm not trusting in Christ for life. But that's what God says. That's what James warns. We are to be a people who say life is in God. He loves me. That's where joy is found. That's where the blessing is found. Blessed is the man who understands the lure, the enticement, that leading to sin, that leading to death. Blessed is that person. And so instead of giving in, they hold fast. They suffer through trials and they pass tests. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for James chapter one and the difference between a test and a temptation. Oh, Father, we pray that we would past tests, and we pray, God, that we would resist temptation. God, help us to be able to analyze and assess what's going on in our lives, that we would see your working and the reality of the ugly fall into sin, and that we would repent and turn away from it. And at the same time, God, help us to see the power of passing tests and living for the reward. Father, we pray that we would turn to you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.